Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, is Jeff Crawford. Jeff, it's a very special time. It's a very special episode. How are you today? Oh, I'm I'm thrilled and honored to be here this day as we deal with, you know, hard facts and things and all sorts of great things, basically, to celebrate this golden, golden hour. Yeah, I was thinking about how over the years, over the last few decades, you would think ahead and think, man, sometime it's going to be the 50th anniversary of Disney World. And isn't that going to be a thing? That's going to be a huge, huge deal. That is going to be a blowout. Because we were there for the 15th as little kids, and the 15th was an enormous party, as was the 20th and the 25th. Yeah. So you could only imagine what the 50th would be like. So here we are. Yeah, Disneyland's 50th was a big deal. Oh, yeah, enormous. So, yeah, we're here, and we are intending to make it a, a, a very big deal. Exactly. We're taking it upon ourselves to celebrate the 50th. And, you know, Disney's doing an 18-month celebration. We just may have to, you know, drag it through the garden and keep it going because yeah. uh, uh, this has been a lot of fun. So today, you know, this month, the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World at last is here. And uh, we're going to do something a little different. Jeff, uh, what are we doing today? We are going to go through the history of Walt Disney World. <laughs> and we're going to go through it in uh, this special uh, time machine I've found over here. And we're going to go visit some important dates in the history of Walt Disney World. Uh, from the beginning, from before the beginning, uh, up until the modern era. Sounds good. I'd wondered where we put that time machine. Yeah, you know, uh, you shouldn't you shouldn't use these things lightly. Right. The Morlocks might get it. Exactly. But uh, let me get this out, and I've dusted it off. Uh, let me just set the dial here to pre-Walt Disney World and see where that gets us. Something special we never enjoyed at Disney. The blessing of science. 
There's enough land here to hold all the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. Orlando has long been known as the City Beautiful. In Orlando, there are many flowers. And trees made out of sunlight. In Orlando, there are 54 lakes. And thousands of beautiful homes. But in the past few years, as one of the fastest growing cities in the United States, Orlando has gained a new distinction, a one-of-its-kind parlay of sunlight, beauty, recreation, and modern industrial opportunity. It is a city of old established customs and huge new industries, as new as the day after tomorrow. Well, uh, that was a little too early, but man, sounds like Orlando was ready for Disney to come. Yeah, Knocking. day after tomorrow, they're they're ready to go. Ready. Uh, maybe those uh, trees made of sunshine were the inspiration for New Tomorrowland in 1994. <laughs> could, could be, could be. There is a lengthy story to be told about everything leading up to the announcement of Disney World, a story I find very fascinating. So we will be telling that story sometime over the coming years of what led to dis- Disney to Florida and how they managed to covertly acquire uh, 27,000 acres of land. But for our purposes today, we will start with the announcement of Disney coming to Florida. This was about a month after the story leaked in the local press, and then Governor Hayden Burns confirmed that Disney was coming. So on November 15th, 1965, the governor was joined by Walt and Roy Disney in the Egyptian room of the Cherry Plaza Hotel. Michael, the Egyptian room, uh, owed to be there in person. So classy and mysterious. Yes, so uh, the press conference was short on details, just kind of confirmed that they were there. Uh, Here is a little bit of what Walt had to say that day. And that is actually what we hope to do here, is to really develop something that, uh, well, it's just more than an entertainment enterprise. It's uh, it's something that uh, contributes in many other ways. Uh, Well, educationally, And uh, one thing is that, to me, the important thing is the family. And if you can keep that family together with things, and that's been the backbone of our whole business, catering to the families. And that's what we hope to do. Walt, everyone in the state has been thrilled with the announcement of your purchases. Uh, Located some 12 miles south of Orlando, and, of course, they are all excited to know just what type of attraction or what type of usage will be made of this great location? Well, at this stage, uh, uh, Governor, it's it's hard to spell it all out. Uh, the uh, Disneyland operation is, uh, is unique, and uh, out of the 10 years' experience at Disneyland, we have we've learned an awful lot, and it's like anything that after you've done something, you see uh, with the experience and, the, and all of that 
what you might do if you were starting from scratch. And uh, here, after taking a look at the land this morning, I, I say we are starting from scratch. <laughs> but uh, we have many things in mind that could make this unique and different than Disneyland. Will it be a Disneyland? Well, uh, I've always said there will never be another Disneyland, Governor. And uh, I think it's going to work out that way. But it will be the equivalent of Disneyland. We know the basic things that have this, what I call, family appeal. But there's many ways that you can use those certain basic things and give them a new decor, a new treatment. Uh, Disney World, that term has been used in many ways in our business. Uh, they refer to, uh, we have a publication called the Disney World, which brings encompasses all of our activities for our employees and our offices all over the world. The Disney World is something we've been using. Now, whether Disney that... World of Color? Uh, wonderful World of Color. Wonderful World. Uh, on NBC, at uh, Sunday nights. <laughs> <or Saturday. laughs> we've been using the term uh, Disney World to encompass all of our activities. Now, what we'll, what we'll call this here, we haven't got into that. That takes a little study. I had to include that last part about the Disney World because he gives uh, Hayden Burns the uh, the eyebrow when he chides him about the, calling it the wonderful uh, Disney World of Color. <laughs> getting, nom- getting the nomenclature wrong. I love that he plugs it, plugs the show, though. Yeah, it's <laughs> <That's great>. funny. <laughs> Worthy of the uh, press corps laugh. Right. I, I hate they don't use the quote, uh, we can keep the family together with things. Uh, like they do all the other Walt quotes yeah, that are on like right. the, the sampler at Hallmark <laughs> or whatever or on construction walls. Totally. It's all about the family, you know? So at this point, the details of the project were left vague. Uh, Walt said that the ideas needed to firm up a little. I uh, like he keeps, he keeps saying, you know, I got to firm them up. It's just, it wouldn't be right to release the ideas until they knew Uh, that they had the proper local and government backing and the situation on the ground to a proper place to begin legitimate planning. So then we get off to uh, trying to lobby for that planning. And uh, Governor Hayden Burns would hit the airwaves with a spot called Yesterday and Tomorrow, which I love. Here's a clip of that. The Disney organization carried out a tremendous amount of research before selecting Florida as the location for their new project. It is a big job for Floridians as well as for Walt Disney. It's easy to foresee the untold potential of this project in all facets of economic growth. By way of an introduction and using an old cliche, you can't argue with success. Look what happened in Anaheim, California. This was Anaheim, California 10 years ago. This is Anaheim today, 10 times larger and millions of dollars richer, all because of tourist money generated by a unique recreation industry called Disneyland. Since its opening, 50 million people or over one-fourth of America's population have come here. What has this meant to Anaheim? Independent research organizations have shown that in 10 years, almost $1 billion have been spent in Orange County, $273 million inside Disneyland, and more than $555 million outside for food, lodging, clothing, and a wide array of goods and services affecting every kind of business. This growth is reflected in receipts from other commercial, recreation, and tourist attractions in this vast Orange County area. 
Disneyland's impact on Orange County has attracted some of the major industries. Some 250 enterprises employing 33,000 people with a payroll of more than $109 million annually. The effect has spread to schools, libraries, and residential areas. Even to influencing the American League California Angels to come to their new 50,000-seat sports stadium. This, then, is the story of what has happened over the past decade to a city and a county. And as Disneyland grows, so will Orange County and California. <laughs> that music. The music sold me. It doesn't matter what they say about anything else. The music has me sold. Also, Hayden Burns always sounds like he's had a slug or two before he goes on the air. Yes. He has that effect. He's very, a very interesting character. Like, well, I'll tell the people how much money we're spending down here. Yeah. How much is it going to be? A John Wayne draw, perhaps. Yes. Florida wasn't really ready for Hollywood style attention at that point. <laughs> That's true. Oh, well, even in the first article in the Orlando Sentinel that speculated that Disney was the so-called mystery industry who had acquired so much land south of Orlando, there were rumors of a community where people would live. Early rumors of a city of tomorrow and a city of yesterday were said to be in the works by Walt Disney, but the public would have to wait longer to find out what was destined for the 43 square miles of Central Florida Swamp. The company would get to work planning what was going to become Walt Disney World and begin to search for legislative needs to get the project off the ground. Disney would begin to craft and lobby for considerations for road improvements and the creation of a super district to be able to manage utilities, drainage, and roads on their giant tract of land. The next few years would be dominated by this push to get everything in an ideal place to start building. On October 27, 1966, less than two months before his passing, Walt stepped onto Soundstage 1 at the studio for his last filmed appearance. The occasion was the so-called Epcot, or Florida film, a 24-minute introduction to the concepts underlying the Disney World project and the planned city of Epcot. Directed by Art Vitarelli and with a script by Marty Sklar, this film has become one of the most iconic touchstones in the creation of Walt Disney World. In fact, it was shown constantly throughout the 1970s at any number of Epcot promotional events, even well after the idea of a new futuristic city had been abandoned and it has continued to be used up till this day in historical retrospectives about the creation of the resort. The film was used in its day to promote the idea of Epcot to both potential participating corporations and to political figures in the state of Florida. Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge. While we're convinced, we must start with the public need. 
And the need is not just for curing the old ills of old cities. We think the need is for starting from scratch on virgin land and building a special kind of new community. So that's what Epcot is, an experimental prototype community that will always be in a state of becoming. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future, where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. Everything in Epcot will be dedicated to the happiness of the people who will live, work, and play here, and those who come here from all around the world to visit our living showcase. We don't presume to know all the answers. In fact, we're counting on the cooperation of American industry to provide their very best thinking during the planning and the creation of our experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And most important of all, when Epcot has become a reality and we find the need for technologies that don't even exist today, it's our hope that Epcot will stimulate American industry to develop new solutions that will meet the needs of people expressed right here in this experimental community. Oh, man. The Epcot film is something else. It really... Yes, it is. Yeah. Gives me the feelings. Yeah. I mean, just... You know, on the cusp of such things, you know, right, and right. Uh, the fact that he managed to get get all that into the can just in time, yeah, uh, is pretty amazing too. Yeah. So as as we always said, you know, who knows what another couple of years would have meant in the That's scheme right. of things. That's right. Probably a big difference. Truly. On December fifteenth, nineteen sixty six, Walt Disney died from cancer. Many worried that this might mean the end of the Disney World project, but Roy immediately quashed any such speculation. In a statement which would be printed on the front page of the next day's Orlando Sentinel, and in fact, it appeared in most major Florida newspapers, Roy said in part, quote, As president and chairman of the board of Walt Disney Productions, I want to assure the public, our stockholders, and each of our more than 4,000 employees wow. that we will continue operating Walt Disney's company in the way that he has established and guided it. Around him, Walt Disney gathered the kind of creative people who understood his way of communicating with the public through entertainment. Walt's ways were always unique, and he built a unique organization, a team of creative people that he was justifiably proud of. Much of Walt Disney's energy had been directed to preparing for this day, it was Walt's wish that, when the time came, he would have built an organization with the creative talent to carry on as he had established and directed it through the years. Today, this organization has been built, and we will carry out this wish. Walt Disney's preparation for the future is a solid creative foundation. All of the plans for the future that Walt had begun, new motion pictures, the expansion of Disneyland, television production, and our Florida and Mineral King projects will continue to move ahead. That is the way Walt wanted it to be, unquote. I don't, I, I wonder, you know, he says Walt knew this day was coming and knew was setting up his organization with an eye to that effect. I wonder how much Walt really thought about this day coming. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think he knew it, it was coming so soon. That's clearly true, but there's, you know, uh, I guess hints towards him really picking up the pace in his later years. 
uh, there was a sense of urgency. And you wonder if it's somewhat related to him feeling his mortality. I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's interesting to think about. But clearly he thought he had more time. They didn't even think he was sick with that until late in the game. Right, right. So it just really, uh, it's impressive to me that Roy was so quick on that and uh, was so resolute on it as they had such different sensibilities through the years. But he was really protective of Walt's vision and his sensibilities. Right. Well, I mean, it's, you know, what we heard in our interview with Scott Gerard a few episodes ago, that he, he it was his mission to do this for Walt and he was going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I find it interesting. He uses uh, most Disney people throughout this era would give the same line that Roy gave in that piece that, um, you know, Walt built this organization and gave us our instructions to continue on in the way that he had done. And I think they hinted at that some in even in Walt's last years when they were talking about Disney World, because uh, you hear it in the press conferences where, you know, he talks about, you know, I'm not even going to be involved in the theme park. I've put the people together who know how to build the theme park and they know what I like and what to do. And I'm going to focus on Epcot. So in a way, he had kind of done that, you know, put put together that group. Right, right. It just seems like, again, you know, it seems like a few years uh, would have gotten him a lot closer on this and, and would have probably helped build up the leadership for the next generation. It's just they yeah. kind of ran out of time for that. Agreed. Uh, that same day that Walt died, Jim Stewart, who was the head of PR for the Florida Project, said that, quote, previous to Mr. Disney's first entering the hospital for his operation, he clearly and in great detail delineated to the organization his plans and dreams for the individual elements of the Florida Project. It is the determination of Roy Disney, the Disney family, and the entire Disney organization that these plans be carried forward, unquote. Stewart said that plans for Disney World were, quote, very, very firm. Other Disney Florida officials, such as General William Potter and Paul Helliwell, echoed these sentiments. Meanwhile, Dick Pope, who was the owner of Cypress Gardens, told the Miami Herald that, quote, I just returned from Hollywood Wednesday, and I can assure you that plans for Disney World are well advanced. His death possibly could delay the start of the project, but I feel certain it will be built, unquote. Pope even told the paper that Walt had shown him plans for a world of yesterday and a world of tomorrow, which he intended to build in Florida. It's clear they don't want this, like, you know, messing up the process that's already in place. Yes. It's like such a sensitive thing that they want to be like, no, we've got it. It's, I mean, it's political. It's a political tactic for a political process. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what's crazy to me in going through this, uh, you think about the press conference to the opening of Disney World seems so far away. Uh, in reality, the things they have to do and the amount of time they got it done with Walt Disney dying is just mind-boggling to me. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, less than five years from his death until opening day. And that entailed all the legislation, all the site prep, all the construction. It's really nuts. And not just for a theme park, for an entire resort. That's right. So Walt dies in December of 66. In February, 
February 2nd, 1967. This Epcot film was shown at the Park West Theater in Winter Park. And boy, to be a fly on the wall here, Mm -hmm. uh, I would have loved to seen the reaction to this. Uh, Disney unveiled its initial plans for the Florida property to a group of press in Florida Brass at the Park West Theater in Winter Park. There they showed Walt's Epcot film, and I imagine stunned the crowd in its scope. Roy, at the time, revealed that Epcot would not be part of the initial Phase 1 build-out, and the company would move forward with the theme park and tourist area to draw industry to the area before building Epcot. So, here we go. We're on track to, uh, to really doing this. They have a vision, and they have a process. And uh, this was a thing, a sentiment they'd echo throughout the 70s is that we've got to get the industry to the area before we build Epcot. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, everything that they had went into creating the resort itself. So there just wasn't any room for Epcot, right? Uh, time or budget wise. But yes, it's as you said, it's remarkable that in this short time they decide, no, we're really going ahead with this. And, uh, you know, they put together this presentation of what it would be. I think about how much the phase one building of Walt Disney World taxed local construction and all the stuff that Orlando, you know, the infrastructure, all of this stuff was like put to the max of in phase one. I can't imagine. I mean, and and we talked about just now, uh, Disney had 4,000 employees, which just blows my mind. It's crazy. Uh, I don't see a way they could have built Epcot immediately. You know, you say with Walt, maybe, but, uh, it just seems like so much to put on the town. This seems like a smart plan, you know, at least from the outset. No, it makes sense. I mean, you get revenue running in with the theme park, and then you have a steady stream of revenue to build Epcot. It it, it makes sense. And, you know, I, I mean, I think with Walt, Epcot would have gone through, but I think they would have been maybe more actively developing it. But yes. I definitely don't think they would have had it built for 71. That was... I mean, everybody says Walt hated saying something's impossible. You couldn't say no to Walt. But I just think reality, uh, I mean, just simple math, uh, there weren't enough. I mean, there weren't enough workers in the state of Florida to build what they built. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) uh, to do like, oh, let's also build a city. It's just not going to happen. Uh, But I think probably he would have been planning it a lot more in, in a lot more detail just on the side. Coming up with some solutions. That's right. So we'll go ahead to May 12th, 1967, where the Reedy Creek Improvement District was approved, creating the municipalities of Reedy Creek and Bay Lake. So they got their legislation they wanted. This was a big deal in making sure that they had the control of building codes and drainage and all the stuff they needed to make this uh, what it is today. At Governor Kirk's mansion, we got a new governor in town, Uh, Roy Disney and a large group from Walt Disney Productions attended. The Sentinel reported that Roy Disney revealed plans for as many as 50 new motels on Disney property and possibly a jet airport and a monorail was guaranteed. So, I mean, I, um, this was like the big, like sort of Damocles that Roy was hanging over the state, like in all the previous press events in any interview previously. And uh, even when Walt was alive, all of their talk about what was going to come to the parks, uh, to the resort was all always with the caveat that 
Uh, well, it depends. You know, Florida's got to give us this improvement district legislation. If not, we're not going to do anything. Because they knew that they had to have this control. And, I mean, they made that a condition. They were like, we're not coming unless you do this. And, I mean, think about that's from February to May. They got it. You know, they revealed their vision. It got done. Roy said the opening was slated somewhere between fall of 1970 and spring of 71. Uh, Don Tatum, who was also on hand, revealed that Disney executives had spent the week touring RCA, Bell Systems, and DuPont Laboratories in search of technology for Epcot. Also involved was important trademark legislation to ensure Disney's intellectual property. Uh, That became law. Evidently, that was very, very lax in Florida, if you can believe it. And odd. Yeah. It's odd that there wouldn't be like a national thing. It would be state-by-state trademark enforcement. That's weird. That is really, really odd. And also on tap for the future was was a labor agreement to get in place. So all this stuff needed to happen before they could really, really put the pedal to the metal. Oh, I can't imagine going through all this. There's a lot of mm. a lot of headache of, of them getting the property in the first place and then to go through this whole process. Right. But I'm you know, I'm sure that they had plenty of very eager politicians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> happy to push it through. But at the same time, you know, just when you read the legislation, it's it's a complicated thing to put together. Absolutely. Uh, there was a lot of talk about Hayden Burns, you know, is, is Hayden Burns going to get employed by Disney? Like, I think he'd be up <laughs> for it. <laughs> he's, yeah, probably. He's not the governor anymore. But um, later on that month, we have the official groundbreaking. They had done site work and they had been working on some water control stuff, but... You really get into the serious business of you know building canals, water control, an unbelievable amount of stuff involved in getting this site ready. And there are two people we should kind of point out that were instrumental in, in all of this, and that's uh, General Joe Potter and Admiral Joe Fowler, uh, who got boats named after them. So I guess they're important, right? <laughs> exactly. Got to be the two Joes. That's right. Uh, Joe Potter had helped organize D-Day. I mean, goodness gracious. <laughs> That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. He had also been in charge of the Panama Canal Zone. And uh, he crossed paths with Disney, uh, coordinating the uh, helping coordinate the 1964-65 World's Fair. Uh, while Admiral Joe Fowler had been involved since the opening of Disneyland, he, in World War II, helped coordinate the west coast ports so both of them had a mind for massive logistics and absolutely would be i mean it is crazy to me that these guys were just on the free market to pick up right of you know who had organized just such incredible things and then they wind up doing i mean disney's their like signature project for both of them that's what, what cracks me up is that Joe Fowler kind of just went to see what was up and they kind of were like, okay, you're working for us. Like, yeah, well, it was just kind of like, that's yeah, how they yeah. did it yeah. back in the day. And they're like, all right, well, you're working for us now and here's what we need you to do. And people just kind of roll with it. But yeah, without these guys, I mean, you were talking about the infrastructure and I mean, that is all, that is all non-profit centered, non-revenue making. You don't make money off of a canal or a berm or whatever. 
but it's all money that had to be poured into the property with money that would never like recoup an investment, but they knew it had to be done and they did it, man. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. All that muck. Incredible amount of work, which would dominate the rest of 1967 as they're getting into the muck now. Later on that year, Roy changes the name of the project to Walt Disney World to honor Walt. So, I mean, he is really going for it. He is honoring Walt in this. It's really touching. Yeah, it is. It's nice. In January 1968... The Orlando Sentinel reports that eight Rome land where Fantasia is being built. Reads as follows. Take a squint into the future. That's what seven men from St. Cloud and Kissimmee did last Wednesday. They were taken on a three-hour tour of a huge project west of Kissimmee by Charles Wagner, construction resident engineer. The tour was over bumpy temporary dirt roads in a land rover operated by Wagner at a dazzling pace. First stop on the trek was an impressive canal, one of several in the area used to channel water from Bonnet Creek, Reedy Creek, Boggy Creek, and the Butler chain of lakes north of the project. Bay Lake, now muddy with a churned-up look, will eventually be clear, pure, and sparkling. Huh. It is a 600-acre lake with an island in the center. Levees will be constructed along the canals and in some sections around Bay Lake to keep out surplus water from the nearby lakes. A dredge is at work in the middle of Bay Lake, siphoning out dirt and sand from the lake bottom to build up a levee, separating it from Lake Mabel's swampy waters. Epcot, Walt Disney's City of Tomorrow, will be located just south of Bay Lake. Oh, that sparkling water. I can't wait. I know. It sounds wonderful. There was a big, you know, hullabaloo in the local press about how Disney was going to mess with the waters, uh, you know, making sure that it was on the up and up. And uh, when we talked to Frank Stanek, he was talking about, you know, it's, it's an incredible, they're dealing with all this water in a swamp, and they mm -hmm. have to keep the lakes at the same level year-round, no matter what the environmental condition is. I mean, yeah, just an impressive feat, just dealing with the water. Yeah. I mean, when you think about how it rained, it's rained the last three afternoons down here, and just a torrent of rain. And you think in the rainy season how much water comes down, but it's got to be the exact same level now as it does when it just doesn't rain at all. Just the the thinking that goes into that, and not to mention all the water that comes onto property and that goes out of property uh, from north to south, it it's really wild. And you want to keep it clean because everything goes down to the Everglades and yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's something else. That is, yeah, pretty nuts. So, you know, everybody wants to know what's going on, what's happening over there. I mean, can you imagine the suspense? <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're, we're getting into year three of knowing that it's coming and nothing has happened. I mean, you talk about trying to peek over the fence at something, but this is something you've got giant pine forests between you and whatever's going on. There's no way to see. That's right. Uh, so in May, May 12th of 1968, we have an article in the Orlando Sentinel <laughs> says Disney something turns out to be a tree farm, which I put in for the title. I love this title. <laughs> it reads so far, all the physical evidence we've had that Walt Disney world is on its way is dirt moving. The clearing of more than 3 million cubic yards of fill dirt on which phase one, the theme park will stand canal routes and lagoons are gradually taking shape. 
In the northwest corner of the sprawling 27,500-acre layout, however, is a Disney something that a visitor can feast his eyes upon and marvel. It's the celebrated tree farm, and there isn't anything else like it in the state. And so, I mean, uh, we're big tree farm fans. We've talked about the tree farm. That's right. It's the beginning of the yeah. What we talked with Scott Gerard about the experimental tree farm, and uh, that would be very important and something that people could see because it was pretty close to the road. Yeah, uh, the rare thing that was close to the road. So there's something. I was driving through that area the other day and just thinking about, man, this is where it all went down. That's right. All kinds of trees that you know and love exactly uh, tended to there. Kept warm with the BTU heater by uh, Charlie Sepulveda (laughs) in the the bleak midwinter. Exactly. They need to have a street up there like Sepulveda Boulevard. That would be good, yeah. Yeah. Classy. Evans Way. Mm Mm-hmm. So we'd have to wait almost another year to figure out what exactly is coming. April 30th, 1969, Phase 1 was announced at the Ramada Inn, Michael. It wasn't the Ramada Inn that we know, but it was no, the one. but I, it's good brand placement for Ramada. That's right. So we're lucky enough to have some audio from that presentation. Claude Kirk, who was the governor at the time, uh, who I wanted to include because he's a real trip. Uh, then we get Joe Potter, who I don't hear much Joe Potter, uh, so I wanted to include his voice. And, of course, we got Roy, too. So here's a little bit of that. Roy and all your crowd were so pleased about this morning. I've gotten all the clouds where you told me to put them. Got one or two little fleecy ones over here on the right. Just a little bit over here on the left. A lot of sunshine, no smog, and just a wonderful place to bring your family. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Walt left us a devoted, creative organization under exceptional leadership. He left us a sound financial base. More than that, he left us a plan for Florida. Now, I rarely have an opportunity of expressing my admiration for Roy, who whenever I try to start says, oh, Joe, be quiet. It's the organization that did it. But today I'm taking that opportunity because it was Roy who took us through shock, reestablished confidence, gave our creative people understanding and support, and guided them in the acceptance of responsibility. Furthermore, he continued in the recognition of Joe Fowler, who, although a Navy type, ranks among the great constructors of this country and the world. But more than that, ladies and gentlemen, he himself established the goal of the master plan for our guidance and told us to go to it. In the first phase, which he established, you will see today. And Roy, you can't say anything about what I said, but I'm introducing you to this public. This is a big day for our company. Looking back over the years, it seems strange, but the the setting for this day really started in 1953, 
when we started planning and building Disneyland Park. Disneyland is typical of everything that we've accomplished at Walt Disney Productions over the years. The real strength of our company has been that Walt and the staff he built always seemed to be able to reach out and touch the heart of the people. And, and that was Walt's real strength. He just had that way about him, that feeling for what's basic with people. Before we purchased the land for the Walt Disney World, we studied how we might prepare this kind of land for development. This is, this site we have is virgin land, and it's subpar land in a sense, with its marginal land and its swamp area. Uh, but the more thought we gave to it, Walt became very intrigued with a water-oriented park and, and how it could enhance the entertainment values that we otherwise would present. Until in, in his mind and all of us, we, we saw it as a great asset. It was more of a problem getting prepared for it and preparing the land. But once you can prepare that, and I think you'll get the idea when you're out there today, how a water-oriented park is going to be a especially beautiful, unique park. Walt was with us all through this time that we studied Florida, and uh, the basic plan that you will see exposed to you today is really what Walt was actually a part of and a leader in, in deploying it. I remember when he walked out there a group of us one day, and we had looked at the land from the air, from the ground, tramped a lot of it, and Walt stood alongside of uh, Bay Lake, and he said, this is where we'll put the park. And from there, it began to grow into a definite idea. So, there was Roy outlining. Uh, like you said, it's like they, they are... They're keeping Walt in the picture, mm -hmm. for sure. Even though they're stuck with their stupid garbage land, it's <laughs> worthless <laughs> and stupid, and I hate it, but whatever. Uh, also, Governor Kirk also sounding sloshed. It must have been a thing at the uh, time. A Florida governor joint. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's so fun to hear these guys uh, talk. You never hear talk. I know. And uh, again, uh, the commitment Roy is showing... It, <laughs> to use this garbage land they spent about $5 million to buy, it would be easy to just write that off, sell it back mm -hmm. um, to somebody. But he, you know, saw the potential in the idea. And, and I think, you know, according to some, he had a lot of fun being involved in the creative side in his years in this role. Yeah, I so. think so. And uh, it's funny to hear them say something that would be a huge focus of the marketing in the early times is the water-focused nature of the resort, like its focus on water recreation. I mean, that's something they would hammer in marketing materials, you know, the water focus of our resort and blah, blah, blah. And it's funny to hear them say that comes straight from Walt. That's right. That's right. And to wit, we should check out some of this film uh, dealing with phase one that they showed that day they had had some models on display and a and a very hot looking outdoor tent at the ramada inn 
They went and saw the property, but they also watched a film that the studio had made, which has some great old music that, that features a lot in our favorite Pirates of the Caribbean to World of Tomorrow. So it's weird to see uh, Disneyland production ethos going to a Disney World project mm -hmm. uh, for me. But uh, here is some of that film. To many millions of people each year, these sites are part of a very special experience, a visit to Florida, the number one vacation state in America, the Sunshine State, the state where all roads lead to year-round recreation and relaxation. Near the intersection of two of these highways here in central Florida will soon be the entrance to a new landmark. The gateway to a project so vast that from its very beginning it has been called a whole new Disney World. Today, the only way to drive from this point through Walt Disney World is over a narrow road. Even now, stands of pine and cypress trees and broad grassland meadows combine in a landscape of scenic natural beauty. Tomorrow, beginning October 1971, this road will become a broad boulevard, bringing millions of vacationers to the very edge of a whole new vacation kingdom. This is Walt Disney World tomorrow. Through the skills of the artist and a bit of imagination on our part, we can journey into the future to participate in a new kind of vacation experience. Here, in the Information and Reception Center, We'll introduce you to our destination resort, as though you were actually a visitor after its opening. This large model depicts phase one, the first five years of Walt Disney World's growth. The main attraction, of course, is the new Magic Kingdom theme park. But Walt Disney World is much more. It's a complete vacation kingdom. And along the shores of the lake and lagoon, is a series of resort hotels, each individually themed to a different motif around the world. This is the Polynesian-style resort, where sports enthusiasts will find a variety of recreational facilities. In the Skim Divers Grotto, you can try your hand at scuba diving, or simply lounge in the sun on one of the coral shoals. The South Seas Dining Room has an underwater viewing area, where spectators can enjoy a fish's eye view of the more active participants. And golfers haven't been overlooked here in Walt Disney World. There are championship 18-hole courses, putting greens at the hotels, and three-park courses too. The Asian-style resort is one of the most exciting in Walt Disney World. As you can see, it has the look of Thailand in its exotic decor. Most of its 600 rooms are set in picturesque oriental gardens. This resort is a touch of old Venice. Here you'll find shopping a unique experience as you'll travel as they do in the old world by gondola along streets of water. The Persian style resort seems to step right off the Arabian Nights with its jewel-like mosques and cobbles. You can practically sail right into your room through the sheltered marina. Also along the shores of the lake is the Contemporary Hotel, the flagship and major convention center of the resorts here in Walt Disney World. It has 750 rooms 
and each one provides a panorama of either the Magic Kingdom to the west or the lake to the east. Running through the open mall are the Walt Disney World all-wake monorail trains, connecting with the other hotels and with the theme park. It's one of several unique transportation systems that make getting around a breeze here in Walt Disney World. For those who prefer a more leisurely approach to travel, the excursion steamers also sail to and from the resort and theme park over the waters of the lagoon and the lake. Another popular spot in Walt Disney World is the wooded campsite along the lakeshore. There's plenty of room for the outdoorsmen here and for recreational vehicles. Regardless of where you stay at Walt Disney World, all the special facilities, including the recreation, entertainment, and dining at all the theme resorts, are available for your enjoyment during your visit to the Vacation Kingdom. And now, let's take another look at this new concept in vacation resorts. There's an excursion steamer down at the dock, ready to take us across the lake and lagoon to the Magic Kingdom. As you can see, these open-deck watercraft are steam-powered, patterned after the riverboats of a hundred years ago. Like her sister ships, the Osceola stops at all the hotels in Walt Disney World. So, if you're really energetic, you might, in one day, go sailing after breakfast in Venice, skim diving after a Polynesian luncheon, and dancing after an Oriental dinner. On second thought, let's make that two days. And you had better reserve a third day to explore the contemporary hotel and the Persian theme resort. The broad sandy beaches extend for more than four and one half miles along the shoreline. They're always open for swimming, picnics, or just plain relaxing in the Florida sun. Out here on the open water, sailing and boating are popular pleasures. And of course, a favorite recreation activity here on the lake is water skiing. Just ahead is the entrance to the Magic Kingdom, where passengers disembark from monorail trains and the water vessels of our Walt Disney World fleet. Within the Magic Kingdom are lands whose themes are yesterday and tomorrow, adventure, history, and storybook classics. And through the skills of the artist and the talents of sculptor and model maker, we can introduce you to some of these highlights. In Frontierland, on the grand scale of Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean, a musical parody of the wild old west, here's the Western River Expedition. In Liberty Square, perhaps the most dramatic show in the Magic Kingdom, One Nation Under God, an audio-animatronics production presenting lifelike and life-size the 37 presidents of the United States. If a free world is to endure, 
then the principles of self-government must be perpetuated. The Constitution is the rock. And the leaders of tomorrow must be as dedicated to its preservation as were the leaders of yesterday. In this Hall of Presidents, we may pay them homage. These immortal men, whose illustrious names have been indelibly inscribed upon history's roll of honor. From these men, the free world may take new inspiration and hope. And if it be wise, new wisdom from old words of prophecy. In Frontierland, a country in Western Hoedown, starring on stage the zaniest troupe of performers ever assembled, the Country Bear Band. The Bear Band Bears are ready. They're set to serenade. Zeke and Zeb and Ted and Fred and the Bear named Lemonade. So clap your hands and stop your feet to the bear toe tap and rhythm. Shout your worries out the door and try to keep right with them. really so much to be said it's quite uh, the presentation <laughs> yes and and uh the um audio work for the different attractions i'm obsessed with that yes the three caballeros version and mr <laughs> lincoln yes well and the country bears and the country bears yes uh the lemonade version yeah uh, of country bears uh also the inexplicable longtime obsession with scuba diving. Yes. Never let it go. The pearl diving lagoon at the Polynesian. Never, ever forget. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing is they realized that the beach was what people do in Florida. And they always thought that they had to go after that beach business. Yeah. When in reality, I doubt they really did, but you know, I doubt putting a skin diving lagoon would, uh, would really change the spreadsheet. Uh, very much but i mean i guess the white sand beach helps yeah that's true i would have loved that uh restaurant looking out on the underwater view oh, of the lounge yeah. or whatever it was that would have been sweet man the description of those 
those resorts uh, that didn't get built. Oh, and combined with thinking of taking the steamer around to all of them is uh, yeah, just a glorious picture. I mean, talk about an all-day affair. Just when you think of three other resorts built with the same aesthetic style as the contemporary and the Polynesian, just how amazing that would be with all the like – you know, think of all the shops and entertainment and restaurants they had at the time uh, and multiplying that out to three other resorts, how crazy that would have been. Yeah, thinking about the Supper Club at the Asian, come on. Just the nomenclature alone would be legendary. Yes, yes. Well, Michael, I think it's time for us to go into the 1970s. Are you prepared? Ooh. To see what's I don't know next. if I'm ready for the 1970s, but uh, let's find out. <laughs> oh, things are looking up. Look up your head, you'll see it. You can feel it. You can feel it. Because things are looking up. Up, up. Things are breaking loose. Look at your smile, it's growing. Getting stronger. All right, let's set our sights for January 10th, 1970, where the Walt Disney World Preview Center opens. According to a Wire Service article in 1969, this building was, quote, styled in the South Seas modern motif with picture window walls and will feature a giant model of the Magic Kingdom Park, resort hotels, lakes, and recreational facilities, which make up the Vacation Kingdom. As the first Disney project in Florida, the center will incorporate the flair and showmanship of a typical Disney attraction. Using animated pictures, projections, models, and drawings, it will give visitors an inside look into the Disney world of the future. The center will also dispense press information, convention reservations, and gift shop and executive reception services. Uh, the preview center is still there. It's just not the preview center anymore. Right. I was about to say i i don't see, I don't see the South Seas modern. <laughs> that is uh, a little gracious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But if people want to check it out, uh, they can go down in the Hotel Plaza Boulevard. There uh, is currently the headquarters of the Amateur Athletics Union, but the building looks pretty much exactly the same. Uh, That's building right. situated on a small lake, which uh, was used to be called Black Lake before Disney times, then became the original Lake Buena Vista uh, behind the preview center there. So you can just imagine it's it's pretty much unchanged from how it looked. They can never figure out where to put Lake Buena Vista, could they? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, and for years, people thought the Lake of the Village was Lake Buena Vista, but it was Village right. Lake. And then I right. think Disney just has gotten confused. It hasn't officially changed it, but it's like people just don't know. And right. it's kind of a mess. Uh, the preview center, I wish I could have gone there. It seems like it was a pretty cool place. I just, the gift shop at the preview center? Kind of their little uh, gift stand, a little snack stand. Uh, you know, all I could have cleared out that souvenir stand. Absolutely. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Catch a presentation, uh, buy some tickets. He's starting to make some money already. Uh, good stuff. Let's move ahead to February 1971, where we get this interview. With Joe Fowler. We got to hear from Joe and the other Joe. Let's hear what he has to say. 
Uh, Walt Disney World is probably the largest private construction job in America. And as the construction chief for that construction job, the number one question probably is, uh, are you on time? Yes, we are. We uh, have no reason at all to doubt that we will open uh, on 1 October 1971. Now, when you open in October of this year, what will the guests find at Walt Disney World? What are the full dimensions of our phase one? Well, they'll find everything completed that we have planned for phase one, uh, including the monorail and all of the uh, ships on the uh, uh, lagoon, all of the shows uh, in the theme park. There will be, of course, a number of projects that uh, uh, will have uh, started, but which we do not expect to complete until uh, a phase two or one of the succeeding years. Now, will phase one include an, an amusement theme park like Disneyland? Yes, even uh, more extensive than uh, Disneyland. And may I say, uh, we believe the shows are greatly improved and much more sophisticated. We probably should recognize that uh, the Walt Disney World is far more extensive. It has not only a theme park, but it has many other attractions, uh, such as the uh, uh, large lake and the lagoon, the uh, uh, theme hotels, the Polynesian and the uh, Contemporary, uh, the uh, rather uh, large fleet that we'll have uh, operating on those waters, uh, including the two uh, Osceola side wheel steamboats, which, uh, after a lot of research, follow very closely the uh, early uh, steamboats, uh, river steamboats in uh, Florida. Uh, they'll carry some 200 passengers each. Uh, they'll have the old rock arm uh, propulsion, the single cylinder. And already we've had a tremendous amount of correspondence and interest on the part of people throughout the country. Uh, then we'll have uh, six uh, smaller steamers, uh, the Voyageur class which will carry about uh, 40 passengers each. And we'll have a host of uh, small sailboats and uh, uh, other uh, watercraft, which I know that everyone will enjoy. Man, so the most exciting thing about this for me is that uh, I can ride that blue flag launch now and be like, ah, this is a nice Voyageur class uh, steamship here. I enjoy a trip on the Voyageur. <laughs> Uh, I love, it's like listening to our grandfather, like, give a lecture about Disney World. Like, what you must realize is the Walt Disney World is more extensive than Disneyland. Shows more technically complex. It's, it's too good. Yeah, he kind of has the uh, the George Burns school of diction. He kind of sounds like George Burns. He does. It's kinda crazy. Yeah. Look, between this and that preview film, uh, the Osceola class getting major PR. A lot of love. That's right. That's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Oh man. Yeah. So we're we're down to the wire now. It's it's crunch time. Remember, remember October first, nineteen seventy one, Michael. I, it's it's there. It's staring remember. us right in the face. On remember every clock surface <laughs> possible, right. and castle. In July of 1971, uh, the Vista Florida telephone system would launch, and this was kind of a big deal. They had their own telephone system, and it was the uh, first all electronic telephone system in Florida. Uh, this would be a system that would continue to be kind of an, another example of this prototype technology. Uh, they would later lay the first fiber optic, uh, you know, line in Florida, maybe the country, but yeah. uh, 
they had the uh, first 911 service in Florida that, as well. That's right. That's right. So uh, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool that they're they are intent on uh, their infrastructure being revolutionary. Right. Well, and they did this throughout, you know, buried the telephone lines, buried the power lines. Uh, mm-hmm. Disney World never has power outages in the storm because all the power lines are buried. And uh, that's something I wish a lot of places would do, actually. Makes sense, yes. But, uh, yeah, this telephone system really, uh, really cutting edge and was a Disney division for a long, long time. I think it eventually got spun off and privatized right. when they didn't want to mess with it anymore. But, yeah, very cutting edge. In August of 1971, Disney announces it's buying 80 acres at Melbourne Beach. Uh, Michael, they've got to figure out a beach solution. People only come to Florida for beaches. We got to have beaches. They got to have a beach. They will expect it. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they need to go to the beach. How are we going to get to the beach? This was right off of Highway 192, so you could have taken that all the way out. Uh, to Melbourne Beach, uh, but they never built on it, and it was sold in 1986. Yeah, uh, they had plans for it. I can't believe they didn't use it. Uh, in October of 72, Don Tatum said that you know they were going to build a beach resort facility with a limited bathhouse and eating facilities. <laughs> said there wouldn't be a major real estate development there, though. People were kind of speculating on the land around there, and... Uh, thought they were going to build a big something and they said no no big real estate development he said he didn't know when the facilities would happen but card walker said quote as we get time and money we plan to do something with that area not only for the people who visit the park but also for those who visit lake buena vista so um yeah it was just a time and money thing i've got a rendering that i put on the blog many 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 years ago uh, for a hotel that uh, I'd gotten this rendering off of eBay back in the early days of eBay. And it's for a hotel. It kind of looks like the contemporary, but is a little more swoopier, a little <laughs> more far out there. And I thought it was something far more modern, but, uh, and I thought it was a early design maybe for, or no, I thought it was like a design maybe for a redo of the contemporary because it looks sort of more complicated than contemporary, but somebody commented one time and said that it was a rendering by, I believe, by George Rester, but don't quote me on that, the architect, uh, for the hotel that they were going to build out here at Melbourne Beach. And that's what they said it was. So I don't know if that's true, but it was very, if if misinformation, it was very specific misinformation. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's so fascinating that they would do this. And then the fact that Eisner was sell it off because you'd think he'd be all about that yeah you would think so well and as we'll talk about later uh, just a few miles away they would buy back more land to build a hotel on so go figure just a few years after they sold it so yeah i bet they were wishing they had that back yeah that's right yeah it's hard to imagine they wouldn't have enough money to build kind of bathhouse and eating facilities man a uh, 70s disney bathhouse the mind races there you go Mind races. Really? On October 1st, 1971, Walt Disney World would open. With the memories of a somewhat disastrous opening day at Disneyland not too far in the rearview mirror, Disney officials planned on opening during a slow period of tourism to gear up for their grand opening. 
Disney reported an almost unbelievable attendance figure of 10,422 people on the first day, which was somewhat shocking to some on the outside. According to the Sentinel, though, quote, those who came enjoyed and enjoyed and enjoyed. One wide-eyed lady was heard to say, it's hard to believe this isn't real, whatever that means, unquote. Well said. These are the parents of the people who went on to be in the travel planner videos later. Right. Right. Uh, Also, this went on to say, Top Attraction Friday appeared to be the Hall of Presidents, which played to a full house time and again. Just around the corner at the Mickey Mouse Review, the attraction went on at 4.30 with more than two-thirds of the seats empty. Also, a big hit was the Country Bear Band with stupid-looking Big Al... Stealing the show with his rendition of Blood on the Saddle. Hey, man, let's take it easy here. Cheap shot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The Sentinel went on to report the status of lost children at Walt Disney World that day, strangely enough. Quote, there were hardly any lost children Friday at the long-awaited Walt Disney World opening. Mrs. Charlotte Angers of Claremont, a pleasant woman who is one of three equally pleasant lost children hostesses, said the day was almost a disappointment. She does not want anyone to get lost, but, quote, we think it's so beautiful here that we want someone to see it, quote. A quick tour of the quarters for lost children turned up the vending machine with beef and noodles, vegetables and beef, and various other baby foods. But it's like lost, lost babies? It's not like (laughs) some lost child is going to come have beef and noodle. Just lost, lost babies crawling through the park. <laughs> and again, the portrayal of women at this oh, yeah. time. Well, I was going to ask if they said how hot the the ladies were there. No, no, uh, yeah, no reporting on their hotness, but they were very pleasant. So, well, yeah. Card Walker told the Sentinel that October quote was a month to get acquainted, to establish ourselves, and record our television show. Now, that show was a 90-minute network broadcast celebrating the grand opening over three days from October 23rd through 25th. Michael, we had a chance to talk to someone who was very much involved in opening Walt Disney World with grand style. Yeah, we sure did. An impresario, to to say the least. That's right. Uh, We had a chance to sit down with Ron Miziker, who was a part of putting together the grand opening of Walt Disney World, uh, among many other things. Uh, We will share more of our stories from Ron in the near future, but we asked him about what the grand opening was like. Here's a little bit of that. So it was determined that we needed three days for this entire event. Of course, yeah. Okay. Now, each day needed to be different and highlight different parts of the park, basically, you know. But uh, because remember now, this is the first time uh, there's an integrated resort and resort hotels and all the facilities that go with that. So we had much more to include than just the theme park itself. The date was set for the what was officially called the opening spectacular and grand dedication ceremony of Walt (laughs) Disney World. And it was to take place October 23rd, 24th, and 25th of 1971. So first we said, okay, how, you know, what are we going to do to really set this thing off on a first class note? Sure. The idea came about that would we, we would, we would create a, a, a performance in front of the castle. 
And this would be a grand dedication concert. Well, we didn't want it to be just any kind of a concert. Instead, we put together the first World Symphony Orchestra. Mm. And we brought in uh, players from all over, first chair players from all over the world. Uh, Arthur Fiedler became the conductor. You may remember him from the Boston uh, Orchestra. Sure, yeah. And his Boston Pops, which was a very successful uh, series of pop concerts in Boston. And anyway, so we brought in, we had to organize because we needed, you know, so many trumpet players, so many violinists, etc. And we had to pick and choose from people all over the world. And the most fantastic thing is when the people showed up for a rehearsal, we had two Stradivarius violinists with their, with their, with oh their, goodness. you know, each of them from a different country. So we, we organized this whole thing. And then we had a rehearsal in New York City of the entire orchestra first. And then we flew them down the day before the, the, the event in Florida in front of the castle. Wow. So this was the first event. And so we have a thousand musicians set up on a, on a great stage in front of the castle. And the castle's all decorated, special lighting, and of course, special music effects. And the audience was, because this is now an evening event, it was a celebrity and special event, uh, especially invited, I should say, audience. So we had we had flown in for it to be there for the whole three days, a whole plane load of celebrities from Hollywood. Uh, and some from New York and their entourages, you know. Uh, and in addition to that, there were so many people invited to this uh, three days. They were, you know, like the president of U.S. Steel who built the hotels. Very, you know, all the different vendors and contractors that were involved also became members of the specially invited audience group. So it was quite a large group. It was a couple thousand people all together. So these were the people that were invited this first night and special chairs were set up and everything in the hub area in front of the castle. And we were a little nervous because we we were went out in the afternoon to rehearse and it started drizzling. Right, right. <laughs> you know, Florida. Of course, absolutely. Fortunately, it, it, it cleared up. So starting the concert was Jack Wagner, who was the voice of Disneyland for years. Oh, yes. You know, he, yeah. he did everything, you know, keep your hands inside the boat at all, all times, mm -hmm. too. All the special announcements and everything. And uh, anyway, he had to introduce each of the persons coming out from the castle, going around the ramp and going onto the stage and taking their position in the orchestra, right? Wow. Now you mentioned the names that were challenged to Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and my God, he did it. You know, he was marvelous at that sort of thing. <laughs> so anyway, so we started out with this big introduction and the, the various um, members of the orchestra come in and go down the ramps, come in and take their position, right? And, the, and of course, now it's evening time. The lights are all working. It's it's just a gorgeous setting. We have a special garland in front of the castle and everything all around. It was really beautiful. And it turned out to be a beautiful evening. Well, I'll never forget it because um, 
Arthur Fiedler is introduced, applause, applause, applause. He comes in, takes his position in, in front. And the first thing he does is ask people to stand and plays the national anthem. Okay. Mm-hmm. And everybody sits down. Now, he's ready for to start the, the concert. So he raises his baton, right? And he points, I'll never forget this, a spotlight hits the center just below the entrance doors to, to the castle. And here's this very tall African lady who um, is the kettle drum. She's got like six kettle drums around her, uh-huh. right? And she raises her sticks in the air and comes down, boom, 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 boom. And it was like incredible, right? Mm. Trumpets come in, da da da, because now they're doing, you know, the. Um, uh, <laughs> I just lost it. Is it Fanfare the, of the Common Man? Yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's, that's Fanfare of the Common Man, you know? which is a, such a dynamic piece in itself but the way it was staged and the way it started and with the with the the drummer and the trumpets it was just goosebump time you know mm-hmm. so anyway we we did the entire concert it was about an hour hour and a half long and 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 that was it for the the first the first day but certainly a very memorable um, event Absolutely. And certainly first class. Yeah, I think about this uh, this castle here. I mean, it's just like made for something like this. Whenever you see that in the TV special, they have a clip of this event. It just looks so beautiful. And it's got to be, it's, you know, such a change from Disneyland. Um, so grand and uh, so large. It had to be wild for Orlando as well to have all these A-list celebrities coming into their little airport. <laughs> I mean... What a oh, amazing yeah. thing! Big deal. It was very big. You know, Orlando was nothing at that time. Right. It, it was a small retirement town. You know, mm-hmm. and I can remember because one of the events that we did uh, was the the mayor of of Orlando, uh, which is Orange County, uh, Florida, and Disneyland's in Orange County, California. The mayor was very skeptical of the whole Disney thing, right? So we actually brought the mayor of Anaheim to meet with the mayor of Orlando and with a big hoopla with press and big deal to kind of tell him, fella, you don't know what's coming. Right. Right. (laughs) You have no idea. And obviously this opening event certainly gave him an idea <laughs> yeah no doubt so that's exactly. night one that's night one okay now the next day uh the challenge was because this is as i mentioned earlier this was the first time that um there are resort hotels that disney owned as part of the um park if you will so we wanted to show those off so the first one was an event uh, inside what we call the Grand Canyon of the Contemporary Hotel, uh, which was a very big open space with the monorail coming through and so forth, right? And Bob Hope actually hosted this event uh, with a couple other uh, celebrities. And 
the, the idea was to have fun with the fact that we created the Grand Canyon. And mm-hmm. Bob and who he is, uh, was, did that just remarkably well. Uh, there were a lot of regular park guests who were uh, in there, as well as some of the celebrities and, and, and so forth. And of course, all of this is being shot for, for television as well. But the evening changed quite a bit uh, because it was to show off the Polynesian Resort Hotel. So this was our chance to really do another evening of fun and excitement. And what we did was we planned a luau on the beach between the hotel uh, and and the beach. This was a luau where we actually put the tables down low, not quite as low as they are in some luau's, but they were down low. So you sat in, not in the sand, but we put in that artificial grass uh, stuff so that you sat on that so that you weren't sitting in the sand per se, because we had 2,000 people at this luau dinner. Wow. Now, the, the, it was uh, the most spectacular luau because what happened was, first thing that is, there were, we had three stages in front side by side. So the first thing that happened was, as the audience comes in and sits down, we have the conch shell blowing from one of the stages and we have uh, Polynesian people in Polynesian costumes coming through the audience carrying torches and lighting all the torches that were around them with the with the drums going and so forth and really kicking off the whole thing, right? But then with the torches all lit and the people all getting excited, out in the water, we spotlight this barge coming in. It looks like a big raft coming in. And on it was a whole group of Polynesian performers, including the drummers and and the, the uh, you know the different musicians uh, and, and so forth. And this very colorful barge came in from the water and locked up to the stage that has been pre-positioned there. At which time, um, and it's performing as they're coming across the water. And then as soon as it hits the, the, the stage, it's there, the people all dance their way off and fill the other two stages as, as well. And uh, it becomes a big luau show. There were, I believe, 150 performers in the luau show. It was really remarkable. And of course, the food is being served during this, and um, it was really uh, a nice way to work up to the major show, show elements. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, well, on a previous uh, episode, I believe, Jeff, we dug up the the menu for this occasion, and it sounds like it was uh, quite a uh, red-letter occasion. I've got the menu right here, as a matter of fact. All right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so the menu uh, was uh, quite spectacular. And again, you, everybody was in the sand, the long tables. So my ties were served as an appetizer or as a drink. Spring tea lows, fried shrimp, uh, rumski. I don't know what that is. Hawaiian boy, uh, Hawaiian salt, uh, orphi in a fresh coconut, uh, luau pig, chicken with almonds, lychee duck, mandarin style. Snow peas with water chestnuts, barbecued pork uh, fried rice, 
jasmine tea, etc. <laughs> wow. Sounds pretty good to me. Wow. Yeah, it was, a, it was delicious. And of course, you know, the tables were all done up really well with all the decor on them and everything. And uh, everybody was given, you know, luau lays, not fake ones, but real uh, flowered lays as they as they came in. It, it, it was really quite a beholding sight. So now, as the performance continue on the stage uh, with different elements, and we go to different types of Polynesian type type dancing, of course, the dinner proceeds through it. And then, of course, there's a big fanfare that the Tahitians did, and a hoopla, and what happens is the dessert was uh, banana flambe. They come in, and of course, there's rows of waiters bringing these these in, and they're all burning, you know, oh, with wow. with the fire. Of course, they set one down at each of the places to, for, for the dessert. But now we go into the finale, and now we go into special music and everything. And what happened was, this was the first time that we premiered the water pageant. I don't know if you're familiar with the electric water pageant on the lake. Oh, yes. It's a favorite, a, mm -hmm. a top favorite for it's sure. It's a line of arches with uh, uh, limited images that, that are somewhat animated and change diff different images and so forth, all to the music, right? right? And so that appears out of the night very magically on the water. Nobody saw it come in or anything. And bam, that happens. And then what happens is we go into the, the finale, which we have above, we have the Goodyear blimp and its entire screen of lights is um, all done up in the colors that sync the match, what's going on. Wow. Yeah, on the barges, right? And then fireworks, of course, going up off of the barges and of course, off of the island behind for the big high shells behind. So you have multiple layer of, of fireworks going off the blimp above. It was really quite spectacular. I can only imagine that sounds just like an, you know, a really legendary event <laughs> in the history of Walt Disney world. Uh, yeah. There's some nice pictures. <laughs> that's, that's definitely one I'd love to be at for sure. So that's a busy night and you're not even done. Oh no. The big day's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> the big day is coming up and it was a, a big day okay so the grand dedication was to take place at two o'clock on sunday this was and um park was filled with guests at this point as well many and of course there were certain areas that were that were the vips uh, were placed and we put in grandstands like next to the train station and so forth and other places so that they had a, a good view of everything that was about to happen. Overall, we had over 5,000 participants, performers in, uh, in, 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 in the afternoon's activities. Mercy. Um, one after the other, after the other, after the other. So once everybody was, uh, everything was in place, um, I can actually play you something here. If you would like to hear this. Sure. This is this is Jack Wagner. <laughs> we love Jack Wagner. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we welcome you to the official grand opening dedication ceremony of the International Destination Resort and Vacation Land, Walt Disney World. 
This event marks the realization of a dream cherished by Walter Elias Disney. Today, in his grand tradition, we'll see a magic kingdom come to life as we take part in this historic grand opening. The proceedings will be filmed today for a television special so that we may capture forever the spectacular ceremony which is about to unfold. In order that you may better enjoy the festivities, we'll give you a brief description of the order of events. The entire area of Main Street, USA, from Town Square to Cinderella's Castle, will become our dedication stage. Music will fill the air, and at 2 o'clock, the chiming of the Walt Disney World carillon will announce the opening fanfare. We'll hear the herald trumpeters of the United States Army Band as we see the one closest to Walt Disney who shared his name and his dream accompany Walt's brother, Roy Disney, to read the inscription on the dedication plaque. The American flag, which will be raised over Town Square for the first time, carries special significance, as this flag was once flown over the White House in Washington and is the official gift from the President of the United States for this occasion. Toward the end of our national anthem, more than 500 white pigeons will fly over Town Square and up Main Street, USA, as a symbol of hope for world peace. So you get an idea. Holy smokes, that That's is very crazy. neat. <laughs> yeah. So let me, let me go through it a little more completely with you. Please, yeah. <laughs> so we've got this huge choir now positioned on the ramps in front of, and, and in front of the castle. It starts and the, the, with an orchestra, not the World Symphony Orchestra, but a regular orchestra. And it starts, Charles Hurt of the University of Southern California was the conductor of it. Oh, sure. And he, uh, it, it, this was, you know, our opening music, if you will. Okay, so the concert goes and it goes for like three or four minutes and it's kind of a highlight of some of the key music you've, you've, you always associate with Disney, the, some of the classic uh, music. So then what happens is with that, as soon as it finishes in Main Street now, uh, in, uh, in Town Square, those fanfare trumpeters that he mentioned are positioned on the rooftops all the way around the square. Oh, wow. So with their drums down in the center of town square. So what they do is they do this antiphonal fanfare with the, the you know, the, 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 the and the drums drumming <laughs> and very exciting because it was, you know, all around town square. As soon as that's finished, that's when Roy came out and, and uh, the other Disney uh, key people to make the tribute uh, presentation to Walt and to the company at large, which was a very touching uh, thing. As soon as he finishes the presentation, the street comes alive. Hundreds of performers come out from all directions and they perform the song Fortuosity. Mm -hmm. And it's like a 1918 uh, kind of production. We had antique cars and, and push carts, horses, uh, uh, all these dancers, hundreds of dancers all performing to, so it was the entire area, the, the entire stage that Jack described from town square all the way to the front of the castle, 
filled with the cars moving through the dancers and everything. This thing took so much choreography to put together so that nobody ran over somebody. For sure. <laughs> right. And the amazing thing was that it entered at all the entrances at exactly the same moment at the first beat of music. So it just filled the street instantly. It was absolutely amazing. And it just went on for about four minutes and it was uh, an, a spectacular opening production number, uh, if you will. We didn't have just a few. I'm just looking, scrolling down here. I'm looking at the pictures of all the antique cars that were used. And there were about uh, 40 of them. Uh, just if you can imagine on Main Street, because I'm going and coming, others appearing. They had a very exact route that they had to drive on music cues to make it all work because you're the streets filled with dancers also who are moving back and forth and around. So you you can remember when we had barbershop quartets and we had people on antique bicycles, you know, like the big wheel in the front and the small ones mm -hmm. in the back, you know, riding between this all. So it was really a cacophony of. Of, uh, of of performers. It was really spectacular. So when that ended, the next thing was the grand parade that you had mentioned earlier. And this is something that we put together uh, using a lot of things that we had already uh, planned for parades in the park uh, and, uh, and just assembling it all together, plus all of the enter entertainers, plus we trained up about another five or 600 dancers who were different from the dancers that were on the street earlier, because it came right after. And uh, the parade goes through and uh, it had floats that we made specially for it uh, and everything, but it was kind of a tribute to all, all the various lands, you know, uh, in, in, of, the, of, the, of the park and so forth. So, so it was uh, a real crowd pleaser because it was so intense and uh, if, if you, and dense, uh, if you look at some of the pictures, uh, you can see how it was just thing on thing on thing piled together, but all perfectly choreographed uh, along uh, the, the whole the whole route. But there was more to come. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> you can't stop there, for goodness sakes. No, yeah? <laughs> no. Now, so the parade finishes, and as it finishes and works its way out. And we had dancers behind it to keep, so they could they move out rather quickly. Now what happens is there's another announcement. Uh, and this one introduces the world's largest marching band. Hmm. We had a 1,076 piece marching band and Meredith Wilson was the conductor for it. That's so amazing. Yes. We had 76 trumpets, 110 cornets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 145 ranks of musicians, right? Oh, my gosh. It filled the entire street. In fact, all the tubas were white, and they filled one whole block alone. Oh, mercy. Can you imagine? It must have just sounded enormous. Oh, listen, it blew people away when when it first started. It, it, we had it come out from under the train station out onto town square. Right. Yeah. And the trombones, of course, were in the front. And uh, first we made a little gazebo thing to, to raise up Meredith Wilson, the conductor. And he came out first 
There was a fanfare. He bowed. His name was mentioned. And ladies and gentlemen, the 1,076-piece marching band. Boom. The trombones start coming out full blast, man. And <laughs> they, they split and went around the town square and then came together again, as which all the other ranks would do uh, as well. And they were all costumed appropriately. Uh, in, in you know, they all looked exactly alike. Um, I mentioned the tubas. We had seventy-two tubas, all white. Holy cow! Each rank had on each side of it had a glockenspiel player. <laughs> you know what a glockenspiel is? Oh, oh yeah. sure. Yeah. How do you find that many glockenspiel players? <laughs> How about that. <laughs> That was a challenge. <laughs> I just imagined the challenges of staging something like this backstage, getting everybody organized. It's just got to be such a feat. You've got all these waves of performers coming on. I mean, what a task. It was like for the week before all this, with all the rehearsals going on out in the parking lot. We had a section of the parking lot uh, blocked off and we put up these big you know, tents and things and uh, had meals served and everything, and all these rehearsals, different rehearsals were going on. And, um, and we taped out the, the, the stage area, Main Street, all the way down to um, the castle in full scale. Um, uh, we didn't tape it, we painted it on the, on the pavement so that we could actually have a replica of the ground. Uh, of, of the street uh, to work off of, so we could get everybody could get mm -hmm. their face, their spacing exactly right, and uh, and 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 so forth. So yes, you can imagine uh, students, uh, the band members were, you know, students, um, high school, college, uh, from all over the state, uh, Florida. They were all bussed in that morning, mm -hmm. uh, and for a final well, first time, they were all together at the same time. <laughs> for a rehearsal out in a secured area. And um, it was overwhelming. And certainly one of the sites that everybody remembers. <laughs> and then they form, when they get to, uh, when they get to the, uh, the castle, they form like spokes around a circle there to finish the musical number. Then what happened is we went into the grand finale and the finale was introduced from uh, Town Square area. The, the band would, was playing as they finished. They went into a special song after 76 trombones, in which the Herald Trumpets, which were, which were still in Town Square, joined in with um, as, as well. Uh, obviously, it grows and grows in intensity. And uh, on the final notes, we blow off daylight fireworks all up and down the, the, the street. Um, and uh, we released 50,000 red, white, and blue balloons. Goodness gracious. <laughs> that was the end. <laughs> oh I mean, goodness. just blowing up that many balloons <laughs> must have taken, I don't, I don't know how long that would take. A long time. It, no, it can't take long because the helium only lasts so long. Oh, yeah. And we had hundreds of Boy Scouts that we showed oh. and they were we had one hundred um, containers set up so that they were specially made so that the 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 balloons could all be released very quickly from all of them at exactly the same time. Right? 
and but you filled them from underneath, you know. So they started three hours before because we we wanted them to really rise quick hmm. and give that you know that uplifting effect. And also mm-hmm. that right before that is when the, uh, Jack mentioned the pigeons find the 500 pigeons sure. with, pigeons with streamers, you know. And um, so suddenly the sky was filled with these balloons. The fireworks beyond them. It was a grand, grand end. It really just must have made, you know, your your hair stand on end and hearing hearing those horns and seeing all that. And the crowd was cheering like you couldn't believe. It was packed with with regular people as well as the celebrities, you know. Right. And um, oh, they were going crazy, you know. I bet. Well, you know, Meredith Wilson was such a perfect person to do this. What what was he like? Oh, he's delightful, delightful, absolutely delightful. Yeah, and That's just great. for him, it was like. You know, it was like a moment in his life, you know. Oh, for uh, sure. It was uh, so uh, incredible for him. 1,076 feet marching band. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah that doesn't come along every day. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Did you have any interactions with Roy Disney during all of this? Uh, only to the extent of working with him in staging, where, you know, I was there for the rehearsal with him um, and where he would stand, where he would move to, to, to present the, the plaque and so forth. I know. I'm sure it was an emotional moment for the whole family uh, finally reaching this point. You know, I was so, I, I can't believe that this man who was Walt's partner from day one, uh, on the whole thing and quite, you know, really made things happen because he was the guy responsible yeah. for money, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and all those things necessary to, to do all this, uh, financially, you know, and yet he gave a hundred percent credit to his brother. That's right. It's just remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, and as you said, I mean, without him, None of this whole project would never have made it off the ground. Exactly. Never have happened. And yet it's Walt Disney World, not Disney World. Exactly. Stop and look and listen to what we tell you. Stop and look and listen to what we say. There is something special we're going to sell you. It is really something to see, so don't go away. Everything you can see, all the surprises from A down to Z. Hold back your boredom and hide beyond we. You just got your foot in the door. There's more, there's more, and more, much more. You've only started. So that wraps up part one of our travel back through time. Uh, Michael, how did that time travel suit you? Uh, you know, it gives you kind of like a tingly feeling in the scalp, but yeah. it's good. It's that, that head and shoulders time travel feeling. That's right. It's fun to see uh, all these moments and what led up to this opening. And man, uh, thanks to Ron for coming in and telling us the details about this opening. It sounded like quite the affair. Yeah, you know, you hear about it. We've heard about it for years and you read about it and everything, but somehow it was even more involved and crazy than 
I'd re- ever realized from reading about it before. Uh, just an unbelievable feat of event engineering. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so like we said, we'll, we'll hear more from Ron a little bit later down the road in his own interview. We had a good time sitting down with Ron, hearing about all kinds of stuff he was involved in. So you'll want to catch that when it hits your podcast feed. Absolutely. To wit, uh, you should subscribe to our podcast so you make sure you get our feed and uh, stay in touch with us. Michael is on Twitter at Progress City USA. I'm on Twitter at Jeff G. Crawford. Michael, it's that time where we check in and see if we have any new Patreon subscribers. We do. Uh, We'd like to welcome Art this month, who joined up for the Patreon. We really appreciate it. He will be uh, tuning in for our monthly history discussion live stream, which, uh, you know, we just uh, did one of those this last weekend. A ton of fun. We've... We're getting to the point where we get a good crowd every month, and it's uh, fun to check in with everybody, see what everybody has to say. Then we, um, you know, show some old photos and play some old videos and have a good old time. Yeah, the commentary in the chat is always worth the price of admission. And a lot of fun old pictures and videos and talking through our episodes in a little bit more detail. So stand for that. And also, you get early access to podcasts and maybe... We'll get a little extra content going on for this series. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. There's there's more to come and get some treats in the mail, all sorts of things. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash USA. And for everybody who's already joined, we thank you and really appreciate it. That is true. You can also be in touch with us at our email, which is podcast at progresscityusa.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, And be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. That always helps. Uh, Michael, what's coming up next? Well, we're going back to the well. We've got a whole new decade of a whole new Disney World. And uh, next, you know, we'll be seeing... Maybe what what's up with that Epcot thing that they promised? A uh, lot of lot of legislation went into making this Epcot thing happen, so they'd better get on it. And uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. What is an Epcot anyway? <laughs> exactly, and an old fashioned swimming hole. All sorts of stuff on the way. Yeah, we got a bunch of good stuff. So stay tuned to the feed, and we will be back soon to celebrate a little bit more Walt Disney World 50th anniversary. Take care. We'll see you soon. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks Thanks for for joining joining us. us. listening to the Progress City Radio Hour. 
created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at ProgressCityUSA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at arborridgestudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.